So as I said at the beginning, we're starting a new series today. We're going to be thinking about biblical topics, particularly from the Old Testament, that kind of make us stop and, and think for a moment, because for us modern people, they don't necessarily resonate, they don't make sense, particularly when we think about who God is in our tradition and the way we worship today. Now, to begin with, though, I was, kind of, I was thinking about this. I wonder how many of you actually own a Bible, and where is it at in your house, right? Now, hopefully it's somewhere in your home, not in a box on a shelf or out in the garage somewhere or something, but it's probably out prominently, hopefully, in your home. And, and I was thinking about this for a moment. What were you taught when it came to respecting the Bible? You know, those family kinds of traditions that we hand on, right? Here's a couple of them that I remember. Uh, the family Bible belonged front and center on the coffee table, especially if you knew the preacher was coming by, right? And the family Bible was not a coaster, right? So you were not to put a glass on top of it or a drink, right? Okay. One of the other things, too, is the family Bible was supposed to be sacred. It was supposed to take precedence, prominence, so you didn't stack magazines or other books on top of it. And then I was also taught that you respect it by not writing in the margins and you make sure all the pages are nicely, properly folded out, that there's no crinkles or anything like that in your Bible. One of the other things I remember being taught is the Bible is the Word of God and all things that are in it come from God. And so we shouldn't ignore it. We should pay heed and pay attention to it. Now, were you guys taught any other kinds of family traditions? Anything that you recall about the Bible? Don't tell me I hit the whole list. Yes, ma'am. not have found a better illustration for that at all. That's funny, yeah. But I, the one thing I wanted just to think about just for a moment as well is, is the, you know, the, the idea that the Bible is the Word of God and all things in it come from God and we shouldn't ignore those things. And that, we're taught about that, right? In the Wesleyan tradition of United Methodism, we think of God's dominant characteristic as sacrificial love. We think of God who is steadfast and faithful, God who became flesh, dwelt among us, God who dies upon a cross, is buried, rose again, and ascended into heaven. The God that we worship is the God of sacrificial love. And that's the main characteristic we believe in and hold to. When we read the Old Testament, then we wonder if we become victims of bait and switch. Because it doesn't resonate with the God that we worship. The God of the Hebrew Bible seems to act differently than the God of the New Testament, the God Jesus called Abba and Father. We wonder, what's the deal? Do we Christians have a different God than the Hebrews? Now, if you think about it, though, for a moment, John Wesley and many others write about this and try to encourage us to believe in both of the Testaments. Wesley is noted for saying that the Bible contains all things that are necessary for salvation. When he talks about the Bible, he is talking about both Old Testament and New Testament. For 
him it is the story of God's gracious love that is expressed first through creation, then through the covenant community, and then through Jesus Christ. It is the story of God's desire for all persons to be reconciled with God through faith and through righteousness. And it is the story of God's desire for the kingdom of heaven and peace to also come to earth as well. If you read through our own traditions, our own standards, and our own articles of faith, you will discover that as we married the Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren, we had statements in our articles of faith regarding Scripture and our traditions. Our Methodist article of faith that we adopted and and maintained and held says this. It says, The Old Testament is not contrary to the New Testament. For both in the Old Testament and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to humankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and human, since Christ was both God and human. Wherefore, they are not to be heard who feign that the old fathers did love only for transitory promises, although the law given from God by Moses as touching ceremonies and rites doth not bind Christians, nor ought the civil precepts thereof of necessity be received in any commonwealth. Notwithstanding, no Christian whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commands which are called moral. Did you get all of that by any chance? I read that and I was like, where's the English interpretation of that, right? So let's think about the the EUB and their article of faith, from their confession of faith. They simply say regarding Scripture, We believe the Holy Bible, Old and New Testament, reveals the Word of God so far as it is necessary for our salvation. It is to be received through the Holy Spirit as the true rule and guide for faith and practice. Whatever is not revealed in or established by the Holy Scriptures is not to be made an article of faith, nor is it to be taught as an essential to salvation. At least the Evangelical United Brethren knew English and could write in it plainly. Basically, our articles of faith say that we do not believe in two separate or different gods, and therefore we worship one God, the God of the ancient Hebrews, the God today that is revealed to us through the New Testament. We believe in both the Old and the New Testament. But that still doesn't address the tough questions, the unsettling questions that we often find ourselves encountering. Most of you know that that last year I announced that I was going to begin a pastor's Bible study. So we gathered, and there's a group of about 17 of us that have been studying the Bible. But we began with a, a very particular kind of study. Instead of going through and doing scripture studies, we began with a book that's titled The Story written by Randy Frazee and Max Lucado. And what, what these two authors did was they took the 66 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament and put it into 31 chapters as a narrative. And so they took the scriptures and put it into a narrative story from creation through revelation so that you can get a, a view of the overall arching scripture as it progresses through history. As well, So it's a narrative of the story of God. It's a narrative of our human ancestors. And it's a narrative that contains parts that are very germane to every single one of us in our journey today. And for the most part, we've really enjoyed this study together. Notice I said, for the most part. Because in our journey through the scriptures, we've witnessed not only the marvelous work of God that's constantly attempting to forge a relationship with us humans that's found in this steadfast love and faithfulness and in God's sacrificial love, we also come to moments where we struggle with the story as well. 
We have watched characters take a journey of faith and faithfulness. We have watched characters journey through the wilderness on a path all of their own. And we found some of these stories perplexing and troublesome, particularly when we got to this section of the story, where Joshua is commanded by God to take the people into the land and to take the land. And the scenery that, that compounds it as you, as you read through the story and what transpires. Now, let's consider some of the dynamics, though, that are at play as you read through Joshua. And let's think about the foreground of this and where they come to at this moment and how we understand it. If you remember, God promised to Abraham two things. Do you remember what those two things were? Number one, that he would have children. And those children would multiply to become a great nation, so great that they would outnumber the stars in the heavens. That was the first promise that God made to Abraham. The second promise God makes to Abraham is to give them the land of Canaan as an enduring possession so that they might worship God in the land. We know that God keeps that first promise through Isaac, and then through Jacob, and then through Jacob's 12 sons, eventually they become a great number of people. The story tells us that in his 12 sons, they find themselves in Egypt eventually. At first, they're accepted in Egypt because one of their younger brothers, Joseph, is the second most powerful person in Egyptian politics. But over time, the story tells us that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all find themselves in disfavor with their host and they become slaves. 400 years in slavery, and at that 400 years, God liberates them through the leadership of Moses, guides them out of the land, and they find themselves in the wilderness for 40 years. Now Joshua is the one who's supposed to take the people into the land that God had promised them to receive that second promise given to Abraham, the land. From the oral tradition to the written tradition, elements solidify in this story. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are to drive out anyone who is currently living in the land. And we read in it, even if it means killing them. We read the stories of the wars between Israel and the current kings that are in the land. The book of Joshua chronicles how God fights on the side of a faithful Israel, but the moment that Israel is unfaithful, God leaves them. But think about this for the moment. What's the purpose of driving the people out of the land? All the ites that John did such a great job trying to read through, right? What was the purpose of driving all of them out of the land? The people who lived in the land worshipped idols. You remember Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 6? God says, these are the first of the commands that God gives to Moses to give to the people. And it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever of anything in the sky above, on the earth below, or in the waters underneath. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I am the Lord your God and I am passionate God. And then not long after that, what did the people do at the base of the Mount of Sinai? They asked Aaron to make for them a golden calf, an idol. 
that they worshipped, right? I read an article this week titled, Gentiles in the Hands of a Genocidal God. It's actually in Christianity Today. and It talks about this scripture passage. The author reminds us of the fact that these texts, when originally written, were written in ancient Hebrew, not in English. Our English translations are often inadequate in describing the fullness of the text or what is meant by the text. In the ancient Hebrew, the command for ancient Israel was to devote themselves completely to the destruction and to show no mercy. That's the way we read it. But the Hebrew word is haram, which actually means religious cleansing of the land of its abominations. We read it as genocide of people. It wasn't that God wanted the people eliminated. God wanted their abominable practices eliminated from the land. It wasn't about ethnic cleansing. It was about religious identity and purity. And God knew that they could not coexist with idols and idol worshipers. The invitation was for them to lay down their idols, to cast aside their idols. They didn't have to morph into the ancient Israel society. They could have lived next to each other as long as all the idols were gone from the land. But they refused to lay down their idols. And that's where the war came from. Now think about this for a moment. Anyone who might use these texts today to support political or social programs of genocide, we know they're misusing the text. Amen? Even then, we should understand that it wasn't God sponsoring ethnic or social cleansing. It was about religious identity and keeping his people for himself. If you recall the, the scouting out of Jericho, what makes sense most is this. The spies were almost caught except for the swift action of a Gentile woman by the name of Rahab. Right? She protected the spies in the land. She let them out of the window, down the walls of Jericho. It was through her assistance that they were saved. And because of this, her family was spared and allowed to live in the land. The idea of harem in the Old Testament meant religious cleansing of the land from idols so that God could be the sole deity that his covenant people would worship while living in the land. Harem, we believe, permeates not only the Old Testament but also the gospel as well because God desires for each of us to cast aside the idols that we might have, whatever form they might take in our own lives so that we can enter into a covenant with God, the same covenant that the ancient Hebrews had, that Christ might be the soul of our lives as we worship God. And the invitation is for us to eliminate whatever might be taking up space in our hearts and lives. And so the question I'd have for you today is, is there an idol that you have in your life? Is there an idol that takes up space in your heart, in the land of your life? I read a book this week. Actually, I read it several years ago, but I was looking at it this week. It's on my bookshelf. It's written by Peter Gall. It's titled My Beautiful Idol. He wrote it several years ago. But as I was perusing through it and thinking about what what he was writing in there, I came across this statement that stuck out to me. And he said, Needs are all made up, and there will always be new needs. Did you hear that? Our needs. They're all made up, and there's always going to be a new need somewhere around the corner, right? Things you don't even know about today are things that the world will make sure you will not be able to live without tomorrow. So think about that for just a moment. The iPhone just turned 
10 years of our age, right? How many of us remember the days before the iPhone? Right? I remember the days when I used to own a Texas Instruments calculator. And I had to get it out if I wanted to do some math or addition, right? I remember the days of owning an alarm clock and having to set it so that I would wake up at the right time. I remember the days of keeping a paper calendar. I remember the days of having a contact book that actually had names written in it and phone numbers and addresses, right? I remember the days of having to figure out where I left my D-cell batteries so that I could put them in my flashlight so my flashlight could work, right? And I remember the days of going to the Encyclopedia Britannica if I wanted to look something up. How many of you remember those days, right? And now today, our beautiful little idol, the iPhone, can do all of those things and many, many other things for us, right? Power. Convenience, easy access to the world in one small package. The things that you don't even know about today that the world will make sure you cannot live without tomorrow. Our beautiful little idols. How many of us need a little harem in our lives? A little cleansing of the beautiful little idols that we keep in our own lives so that we might make space for God to inhabit. I think the reason that the people that the, the reason that we invite people to read the scriptures and to inhabit them are simple. Right? Our own book of discipline says that through faithful reading of scripture we come to know the truth of the biblical message in its hearing for our own lives and for the life of the world. To hear the story of salvation, to hear the story of God who wants us to center in his presence, and to be a covenant people with him. That is our story as well. It's the story of God who desires to inhabit that space that is in each one of us that is meant solely for God. If only we would let go of those little idols that clog it up. So be reminded, dear friends, that we don't worship a different God than the one that's portrayed in the Hebrew Bible. We worship the same God. And through study and conversation, we come to better understand who God is in our lives. And hopefully through today's conversation, we might hear the invitation to cast aside the idols that we might have so that we might give ourselves wholly to God who is creator, sustainer, and redeemer. And so here's what I invite you to pray over today. To pray over anything that might be in your heart, in your life, that's taking up space that was meant for God. To hear the invitation to let God practice some harem in your life, to cleanse you let go of those things so that that space might be fully inhabited by your God. So let us pray. So gracious and holy God, as we come before you in this moment, we ask, O Lord, that you might look into the depths of our hearts. Sometimes it's pretty easy for us to see what is impeding our relationship with you things that might actually be our little beautiful idols. The items that we want to hold on to. The characteristics. The habits. Oh Lord, speak to us today. Through your spirit move us. Not only to confess, but to let go. And to allow that space to be cleansed for you so that we might dwell in a perfect relationship. Use your scriptures to teach us and to remind us 
that you are beckoning each one of us to a life fully devoted to you. Lord, may that be our journey today and each day forward. And we ask this in Christ. Amen. I'm going to invite John. He's